Alcarde Voltero Avenue. I'm delighted to welcome you to the fourth lunchtime lecture in our Sisters 2 series here at the Academy, uh, which celebrates sisterhood and specifically the lives and achievements of sisters who made their mark on Irish life. And before I welcome our speaker, Professor Diane Orkart, I would like to draw your attention to some housekeeping items. So just to let you know if the fire alarm sounds, there are two exits from the meeting room. The first is to your left, which is an exit onto Molesworth Lane, and the second exit is back through the library and the hall to the front door exit. The gathering point is just outside the Mansion House, and Academy staff will be on hand to guide and assist. And um, Finally, can I ask that you please turn off your mobile phones for the duration of the event. I'd also like to remind you that the next and final lecture in our series will take place on the 10th of November at 5pm, and that this will be followed at 6pm by the official book launch of Sisters, Nine Families of Sisters Who Made a Difference, edited by Siobhan Fitzpatrick and Mary O'Dowd. Unfortunately, um, availability now is for, for the lunchtime lecture, or for the lecture at five o'clock on the 10th of November. Um, the tickets are all gone, um, but if you are interested in attending, um, just keep an eye on our website and social media. Um, so as if, if more tickets become available, we can let you know um, via those channels. So, Sisters, um, as a publication, is a beautifully produced volume of essays uh, published by the Royal Irish Academy, which traces the public and private lives of nine sets of sisters, including artists, publishers, writers, educationalists, and revolutionaries. The essays take readers on a journey through the centuries, from the 1600s to the turbulent years of the independence struggle in 1900s Ireland, attempting to uncover the influence, support, and rivalries of family, and is on sale today at the special price of 20 euro. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Diane Orkart, Professor in the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics at Queen's University Belfast. Diane is a gender historian with a special interest in modern Ireland and Britain, particularly political and legal history, and she specialises in women's first entry into politics from the late 19th century onwards, Anglo-Irish political patronage and Ireland's history of abortion and divorce. She co-authored The Irish Abortion Journey, 1920-2018, with Lindsay Erner Byrne, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. Most recently, her book chapter, The PRS and the, Pheasant, and the Peasant, Popular Mobilisation and the Ulster Women's Unionist Council, 1911-21, appeared in Gender and History Ireland, 1852-1922, which was published by Rootledge in 2022. Diane's talk today is entitled Reassessing Anna and Fanny Parnell. I'll hand over now to Diane. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's really lovely to be here, but I feel like I've come a very long way round because this lecture was initially scheduled for, I believe, April 2020. It's so long ago I'm struggling to remember. So it was an early COVID casualty. Uh, but sincere thanks are due to Siobhan Fitzpatrick and Mary O'Dowd, who kept the Sisters Project going and that momentum going through lockdown. And it's fantastic to have the brilliant edited volume Sisters being launched here in a month's time. Thanks also to Anita Cooper, to Barbara for the kind words, and also to the Academy for hosting me this afternoon. I had previously written on Anna Parnell's use of political rhetoric in England during the land war of 1879-81, but the Sisters Project gave me a new opportunity to adopt a more comparative approach to the most politically active of the Parnell female siblings, Anna and Fanny. Whilst they've been collectively considered before, 
their popular moniker of Ireland's Patriot Sisters suggests a commonality of reception that these women received within Irish national circles and also within late 19th century society more broadly. However, the digitization of the press, particularly the American press, I think is allowing a much more complex and at times contradictory picture of these sisters to emerge. The paper's title, We Found a Better Way, Boys, is taken from this poem that you can see on the screen. So Fanny Parnell's Hold the Harvest, which was penned in the opening phases of the Irish Land War. It became her best known work and was acclaimed by Michael Davitt as the Marseillaise of the Irish Peasant. And Fanny's call for peaceful protests was symbolised by the lines on the slide. Hold your peace and hold your hands, not a finger on them lay, boys. Let the pike and rifle stand. We have found a better way, boys. In singling men out for instruction, Fanny highlighted the challenge to gendered moors that was omnipresent in the land campaign. Women's unprecedented involvement in this transnational political movement that often defied both law and gender expectations was controversial. However, not all female land leaguers received equal treatment at the hands of their critics. Of the Parnell sisters, Anna was consistently depicted in the most extreme terms, even though it was Fanny as a teenager who was the first of her family to support not only Irish independence, but also the Fenian movement. However, Fanny's sympathy with the Fenian cause mellowed as she matured into adulthood, and she came to share Anna's view that physical force nationalism should only be supported if it might succeed in freeing Ireland from British rule. Fanny did not approve of violence as tactic in the land war, hence the better way immortalised in Hold the Harvest. The Parnell sisters were a part of a large Anglo-Irish-American family of 11 children. In the early 19th century, the Scottish political theorist, historian and psychologist James Mill offered a really interesting definition of the family. Mill excluded servants from the family and suggested that the body which he referred to as the group inferred stability. Although outward appearances of the Parnell suggested a stable gentility, the family was tried by early paternal and sibling death, as well as by considerable economic instability. The Victorian period witnessed a greater degree of familial containment of women and children within the home, but family remained the medium by which individuals entered society. And this intersection of the domestic and the public realms gave mothers in particular a key function as the primary educator of children, crucial to the shaping of self. The Parnell's American mother, Delia, inspired in some of her progeny an Irish nationalism that verged on Anglophobia. Delia took her elder daughters from the family estate of Avondale and Wicklow to London and to Paris to pursue finishing school education as well as husbands, whilst her sons and younger daughters, and that included Fanny and Anna, who were non-dowered and lost really lacking in marriage prospects, remained in Ireland. Bookish, intelligent and schooled by governesses, the younger girls subsequently enjoyed more freedom the many women of their class. Fanny Parnell, who you can see behind me, was described as, and I quote, a tall, intense and handsome girl. A philanthropist, songstress and poet, she fulfilled some of the ideals 
which were expected of Victorian women. Age 15, she began to contribute nationalistic poems to the Fenian paper, The Irish People, and she often wrote under the pen name of Ilaria. If anyone can explain why, I'd be very grateful. Um, Ilaria is situated on the eastern coast of Corsica, and beyond that, I cannot say why she chose it. Uh, so that's a, a puzzle uh, to unravel, uh, hopefully in the future. In this writing, Fanny was continuing a pattern of female nationalist literary involvement, evident at least from the Young Ireland movement of the 1840s. Her poems were often rallying calls for Irish independence and sympathised with the labourer's plight. She was, however, greatly affected by the death of her father in 1859 and the lack of financial provision left for her mother. And she was really devoted to her mother, it seems, and she moved to America to live with her on the family estate in Bordentown, New Jersey, in 1874. Fanny's younger sister, Anna, and this is the only photograph we believe that we have of Anna, she was depicted as fragile in physical form, but possessing, and I quote, a remarkable ability and energy of character, a resoluteness of purpose together with a thorough revolutionary spirit. Anna studied art in Dublin and London, but later joined her mother and sister in New Jersey. In 1878, the new departure of Michael Davitt and exiled Fenian and Clan Nagel activist John Devoy joined physical force and constitutional nationalism to pursue land reform. It provoked Fanny and Anna to publish articles in the Irish American press to counter criticism of the emergent land movement and their brother Charles's involvement in it. An 1879 letter by Fanny to the editor of the New York Tribune it was entitled A Sisterly Defence and it indicated that her political views could only be expressed under a familial banner. She was clearly aware of the gendered strictures that marked the most distinctive indication of one's place. And she wrote, and I quote, that she regretted she was not a brother of Parnell to make it easier for her to help him in his battle for the rights of Ireland. Fanny and Anna also helped organize Charles's fundraising tour of America in 1880. His address to the House of Representatives was a modified version of an article written by Fanny for the North American Review. However, intimating what lay ahead for women who might enter the political arena, their efforts were scorned by some male nationalists. Correspondence between Du Bois and William Carroll of Clan Nagale, for example, despaired of Fanny's, and I quote, interfering ways, suggesting that the Parnell sisters work, and again, I quote, all smack too much of a royal family. This is really gender and class infused, this dislike um, of them emerging in this way. Undeterred after Anna and Charles returned to Ireland, Fanny appealed to Irish-American women to support a female branch of the Land League to aid evicted Irish tenant farmers. The first Ladies' Land League was established in New York in October of 1880 with Fanny as vice president and her mother as president. To negotiate gendered strictures, the organisation was deliberately cast in the mould of a fundraising body. Its declared object was to collect funds for the Irish cause, but it also had a consciousness-raising mission, pledging to enlighten the members on questions which now agitate Ireland. Fanny espoused peaceful protest as a tactic in the land war, but she supported the idea of Irish independence, which she envisaged as constituting a total break with the British connection. 
but she was socially conservative and she did not align the land question to the issue of social reform in the United States. And we know from the work that's coming out on the American Ladies' Land League that some members were socialists and fighting very much to improve working conditions. Um, Fanny doesn't seem to be of that ilk. Her focus is very much on the Irish land campaign. And Fanny denied being, as she put it, a woman's rights woman, portraying the organisation as an extension of women's proper role. She wrote, land league business is essentially women's business because it is the work of philanthropy and humanity. And this was persuasive. Fanny was described in the American press as lacking, and I quote, that unpleasant masculinity which is often seen in women who step outside the home circle for any purpose. And her work was favourably compared to that of Lady Jane Wilde, better known as Speranza, in the Young Ireland movement. Her mother was also compared to Speranza on occasion. But this first incarnation of the Ladies' Land League was not above reproach. On St Patrick's Day 1881, Bishop Thomas Grace of St Paul's, Minnesota, condemned, and I quote, the repulsive encouragement of women to leave their homes to establish political leagues that were foreign to their minds, their training, their duties, their womanly instincts, and which were an infringement on the sacredness of the home. That's quite a list coming from Bishop Grace. The women's organisation, however, continued unabated. Uh, they amassed over 200 branches, we think 225, and perhaps as many as 17,000 members. The organisation was also defended by some male nationalists. Former Fenian, Patrick Melody, denied it was a political organisation, and he claimed it was purely a charitable one. So there's this constant tension about what is this organisation. And Melody, in his defence, also, however, reinforced prevailing separate spheres ideology. He claimed that women were motivated by male activists, and I quote, entering their domain of clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, visiting the sick, and in prison. Melody's not happy with me, <laughs> including that quote by the signs of things. He was essentially romanticizing female activism. He further stated, I do not want the ladies to fight. It is the province of man who represents superior strength and daring. Women's mission is to shed joy and gladness on all around. Further clerical condemnation came in the following year when Richard Gilman, the Catholic uh, Bishop of Cleveland, excommunicated members of the local branch of the Ladies' Land League, proclaiming female modesty must be maintained. No Catholic woman shall be permitted to forget her womanhood. And it was indicative of the organisation, and more particularly Fanny's growing sense of agency, that she now publicly responded to the censure. She wrote, we have done nothing against the church. As Irish women, we have organised a society to aid Ireland. If that be heresy, then we be heretics. To cite the words of the Nation newspaper responding to uh, Fanny's words, they said the bishop was told to mind his own business. Never a confident orator, Fanny began to deliver more public addresses and became widely revered. Lockets with her image, and there she is, um, and a poetry collection, as well as songbooks of her poems were sold to raise money for the land movement. Hold the Harvest was also cited as evidence of incitement during the trials of Parnell and other male land leaguers. For David, the poem was, and I quote, the trumpet call to the Celtic people to remember the hideous crimes of an odious system. The reaction in court to the poem was certainly not as the prosecution intended. 
It was recorded that applause which could not be suppressed burst forth as the last stanza with its final appeal to God and the poor was read. Davitt believed that this gave expression to Ireland's awakened hope to wrench the soil in one supreme struggle from the hands of their heirs to confiscations. By comparison to its American counterpart, the Irish Ladies' Land League, with Anna, aged 29, at its head, was controversial from its very establishment in January 1881. By that time, Anna's political views had already attracted criticism in Republican circles. In 1879, for example, William Carroll, uh, a leading figure in Clan de Gale, wrote to Devoy to complain about Anna, stating, that the Fenians would not be would be satisfied rather with a Home Rule Parliament and a British Queen, not as mere opinion but fact. So again, Anna's opinion being put forward publicly and forcibly is being monitored carefully in Republican circles. An effigy of Anna, alongside one of the Pope, was burnt in Greenwich in the following year, and Catherine O'Shea recalled Charles Stuart Parnell's reaction. She wrote, poor Anna, her pride being burnt as a menace to England would be so drowned in the horror of her company that it would put the fire out. The response to the creation of the Irish Ladies' League was also barbed. It was greeted with laughter by all but two members of the Male Land League, Michael Davitt and Patrick Egan. And there were widespread concerns that the women's involvement would ridicule the land movement in its infancy. But Davitt was a staunch supporter and stated, and I quote, no better allies than women could be found for such a task. They are in certain emergencies more dangerous to despotism than men. But he too typecast political active women as possessing more courage though having less scruples. As in America, the Irish Ladies Land League was legitimized by politicizing the purported female domain of the home. The February 1881 Ladies' Land League Manifesto therefore epitomised a woman's mission as empathising with victims of affliction and oppression, alleviating the sorrow and misery which threatens so many of our sex, lightening the anguish of the prison and dispelling the darkness of the desolate home. Anna also shared Fanny's sense of gender difference. She called on the men and women of the country to make a manly and womanly contribution respectively. So she wanted men to mobilise outside and the women and children inside, as she put it. But it was more complex than that because attending the scenes of eviction, providing temporary shelter for the evicted and visiting tenants constituted key parts of the women's programme and were all, of course, highly public. Female land leaguers were subsequently depicted as a disruptive force with particular emphasis being placed on Anna's activities. Lord Belmore, for example, was informed that Miss Anna Parnell, accompanied by the wives and daughters of publicans and county shopkeepers, visited a large property. The visit caused much trouble. All the tenants have refused to give proposals for land fit for reclamation and will only take the vacant grass farms if accepted as tenants. As in America, the Irish Ladies' Land League was also censured by Catholic clerics. The most extreme denunciation appeared in the pastoral letter of Archbishop McCabe, read at Mass in Dublin on the 12th of March 1881 and widely reprinted in the press. The women's organisation was portrayed as being headed by, and I quote, reckless leaders operating under the flimsy pretext of charity, 
in a dishonouring attempt to degrade the women of Ireland by parading before the public gaze in a character so unworthy as a child of Mary. And these were strong words by McCabe, um, particularly this notion of parading before the public gaze drew very serious um, parallels to prostitutes commonly known as public women at the time. However, other Catholic clerics and Irish members of Parliament defended the organisation, so again, it's never just one-way traffic. The latter group included A.M. Sullivan, whose wife was president of the London branch of the Ladies' Land League. Although Anna shared her siblings' dislike of public speaking, she became an able and popular platform speaker, lecturing mixed-sex and all-male assemblies in Ireland, England and Scotland. In 1881, for example, an estimated audience of 2,000 people paid admission fees ranging from a selling to six pence to hear Anna speak at a Leeds Land League meeting. The Times then claimed that Anna was lauded, and I quote, as the Queen of Ireland, such is the style and dignity now accorded to her by the Irish peasantry. But her rhetoric intensified after the passage of the Land Act of August 1881, which she disparaged as a ridiculous mouse. And also the widespread arrest of land leaguers, including her brother Charles Purnell, in October of the same year. Imprisonment encouraged many male land leaguers towards negotiation with the Liberal administration. But Anna remained silent on the significance of the land courts established by the 1881 Land Act. And she supported the No Rent Manifesto, proposing nationwide tenant right strikes as policy rather than the political manoeuvre favoured by many male land leaguers, including her brother Parnell. She later wrote, if the faintest suspicion had crossed my mind that the reason why the male land leaguers were not making preparations for a successful resistance to rent was simply that they did not intend to do it, I would have nothing to say to the land league. The prosecution of female land leaguers under legislation of 1361, which was used to prosecute women of ill fame, further provoked Anna's ire. She castigated this female edition of the Coercion Act, as she called it, as much worse than the male. A new system of imprisonment without trial has been invented exclusively for women. Her platform addresses subsequently evoked memories of the famine, claiming that, and I quote, old hypocrite Judas Gladstone, and she's got lots to say about Gladstone, wanted to do away with the wooden shed for the evicted. If he did, he would repair the way for another dying by thousands called an Irish famine, then the English people would send over a few thousand pounds and say, look how generous we are. Anna's radicalism intensified the rift with male leaguers. Charles was much vexed by her letter to the Times that criticised the outgoing Irish Chief Secretary, William Foster's criminalisation of providing shelter for the evicted, which appeared in the same edition of the paper as Charles' denouncement of the Phoenix Park murders of Foster's successor, Lord Frederick Cavendish, and his undersecretary, T.H. Burke. Gladstone was subsequently informed of Charles's determination, and I quote, to destroy the power of mischief of Miss A. Parnell. The press now deemed the Ladies' Land League a defiant sisterhood who had presumed to play the role of agitators. But Anna was singled out for particular reproach as a woman, and I quote, active to excess. She was especially condemned for purportedly politicising children to the establishment of junior branches of the Land League. And this June 1881 cartoon in Bad Company, which appeared on the front page of uh, Funny Folks, the satirical English comic, 
depicted Anna as aggressive and armed. Here she's been previously described by Schneller and others as a portrayal of Edmund Spencer's depiction of the savage Irish woman. She's been described as barefoot in a homespun outfit. But looking at it, I have to say I wasn't convinced and it took me a little while to unravel what I think this represents and it's a much more politically motivated image if so. I see this as a characterization of Marianne, the symbol of the French Revolution, which was subsequently adopted by French militant Republicans. And Marianne's image acquired heightened anarchical overtones following the 1871 Paris Commune. She's often portrayed bare-breasted. Funny folks shies away from that portrayal, but Anna is depicted there with um, hand raised, wearing a Phrygian liberty cap, which again, so characteristic of the image of Marianne. And we see Charles Stuart Purnell on the sidelines. Anna's also portrayed with very masculine features and a muscular frame, thrusting a rifle into the hand of Erin, the feminine allegory of Ireland. And again, it's such a stark contrast to the photograph we saw a few minutes ago and that woman who is described as you know, ferocious in character but frail in, in her physical um, appearance. But this is how she's portrayed in 1881 with all of those Republican um, overtones, I believe, um, represented. Anna also began to be denied access to political platforms due to her allegedly, and I quote, unbecoming language. Her recent depiction of Gladstone as, and I quote, wretched, hypocritical, bloodthirsty, was possibly the likely cause, but I say there's no shortage of unflattering comments she makes in relation to Gladstone. Her denunciation of the Liberal administration also prompted suggestions of irrationality, a claim that was often made of political women. She was described as possessing the style of the Amazon and the spirit of the Spartan woman who used to exhibit outward symptoms of joy when their husbands were slain in battle. So Anna was again being perceived as supporting violence, although she always claimed that this should be a last resort. Her launch in 1881 of a vigilance committee to record and check Royal Irish Constabulary violence and her encouragement of white placard and platform decorations to underscore the ladies' peaceful work were also consistently overshadowed by her alleged extremism. But Anna was soon troubled by more than the personal criticism that was being directed towards her. Suffering from recurring fever in mid-1882, Fanny died aged 33 on the 20th of July. Her cause of death was paralysis of the heart, but there were unsubstantiated claims of an overdose as well as tuberculosis, and that she died from grief. Posthumous views of Fanny also varied. Publisher of the Boston Pilot, John Boyle O'Reilly, depicted her in life as possessing the energy of a powerful man and the intellect and discrimination of a scholar. But he claimed after she died that she died from grief, and that grief was for the cause of Ireland. A short biography of Fanny with funeral obsequies and resolutions of condolence from representatives of the Land League in Ireland, England and America was published in America in the year of her death. Ballads mourned her, and I quote, as a stainless daughter and, and again I quote, our chieftainess. And this memoriam was given away 
uh, with the Weekly Freeman newspaper uh, just within weeks of her death. And again, I don't know um, how well people will be able to see this. It is reproduced in the, in the sister's volume. Um, but there is a, a despairing uh, tenant situated down in the, in the bottom corner, head and hands. Now, whether that is grief with the loss of Fanny to the land movement or because of the land movement more generically, we, we just can't know. On the other side, there is um, a small holding fallen to disrepair, likely uh, the, the victim of the battering ram used so often in the eviction, in the eviction process. Many American land leaguers wanted to repatriate Fanny's remains to Ireland, believing that her grave would become a rallying point and thus serve to unify the land campaign. But her brother Charles would not allow it. He averred that a person should be buried where he or she died. Charles was undeniably distraught at his favourite sister's passing, allegedly avoiding the House of Commons in consequence. Anna would apparently not leave home for weeks and the press claimed that she was unable to recognise anyone as she was stricken with brain fever and inflammation caused by acute emotional distress. Fanny's funeral, uh, which of course then took place in America, had many of the characteristics of a ceremonial funeral starting to be used um, so effectively within Irish nationalism. Her cortege travelled by train through New York to Philadelphia and finally to Boston and attracted significant crowds. You can see in this little press illustration. And in 2000, a boulder of Wicklow granite uh, marked uh, her grave um, in Boston. Fanny's death certainly impacted on Anna's, Anna's fortitude. Unsurprisingly, there was little lament in the press at the Irish Lady Lands League enforced disbandment in August 1882 after Charles Stuart Purnell refused to stand by the female organisation's debts unless they ceased their work. The distaste the Women's Association engendered lingered. One British newspaper later recalled the female patriots who mismanaged the affairs of the Ladies' Land League. It was never Fanny or Anna's design to establish a permanent association of women. Thus, when Irish nationalism enters a new phase with home rule, rather than land reform as its primary object, it does so largely without women. As the Wexford People paper declared, the ladies will not take part in the Irish National League, the successor of the Land League. Anna certainly took no part. Living in the south of England, often under assumed names, her poverty was so acute that friends arranged for her poems to be published to try and help to support her. She spent time painting and on occasion redressed false claims made of the Ladies' League in the press, such as that by former ally Patrick Egan, who described the women as argumentative and, I quote, obnoxious to the popular element. Anna's estrangement from Charles for his part in the Ladies' Land League's demise stands in stark contrast to James Mill's avocation of the affection between brothers and sisters which Mills suggested possessed most of the ingredients which go towards the formation of friendship. Anna rebuffed Charles's reconciliatory attempts, signifying that, as historian Leonora Davidoff attests, sibling relationships can repel as well as attract. Anna agreed to write the introduction of Jenny Wise Parr's posthumous collection of Parnell's speeches, Words of the Dead Chief, which was published in 1892. 
although it's likely that this was due to a sense of loyalty to its editor rather than to her brother. A despondent resignation regarding women's political power characterised Anna in the post-Land War era. She wrote, if the men have made up their minds, it shall not be done. The women cannot bring it about. In 1907, she publicly censured male leaders, especially with regard to the attitude towards the women's movement, writing they were always ready to throw the responsibility of any failure on the soldiers, soldiers of the women. In the same year, she wrote that the Land League found, and I quote, fault with everything we did, we could please nobody. So she felt this for many years. Anna drowned in Devon in September 1911. Unlike Fanny and Charles's ceremonial funerals, only seven people attended Anna's internment, none of them relatives. There was no clamour to return Anna's remains to Ireland. Some of her supporters did write to the press at the time, fearing that, and I quote, Ireland does not know or appreciate her priceless services. But Anna could not escape the shadow of her brother. The American press, for example, announced her death as that, and I quote, as a sister of the great Irish leader. John Redmond's condolences similarly stated that, and I quote, Ireland will never forget the noble part she played in her brother's heroic struggles in the Land League. But this was also Anna's struggle. She sought to end the landlord system, which the land war failed to secure. She wanted full independence for Ireland, which she depicted as a separate country by an active nature. So she was far advanced of the home agenda being embraced by her brother. Feminism also played a part in her political ideology. She wanted women to be enfranchised and autonomous, telling them you can mould your course of life any way you please. And this was embodied in the words that now mark her grave. Um, again, I'm not sure if you'll be able to see that, but um, on the near side image, just down at the bottom, there is the, the inscription and it reads the best part of independence is the independence of the mind Anna had a sense of making history but she did not expect any acknowledgement rather she wrote when we are dead and gone and another generation growing up they will point to us as having set a noble example to all the women in Ireland although the American Ladies Land League is now being recast as providing a kind of political baptism for women, promoting reform and fostering political debate, history was slow to realise Anna's aspirations. Her grave was restored by the Irish government in 2017 and in 2021 Dublin City Council erected this plaque to honour her at the former headquarters of the Ladies Land League by the Allied Irish Bank on O'Connell Street and thanks to Siobhan for bringing that to my attention. It is, however, still possible to read accounts of the land war with either no reference being made to the Ladies' Land League or incorporating barbed criticism that are directed particularly at Anna. Jules Abels, for example, acclaimed that Anna was responsible for, and I quote, a hell broth of hate. In her memoir of Charles Parnell, Catherine O'Shea urged similar views of her short-lived sister-in-law, writing, the fanatic spirit in this wild army of mercenaries was extreme. In Anna Parnell, it was abnormal, claiming that Charles protected the country from Anna's folly. 
and his account of the land war written in reaction to Davitt's 1904 fall of feudalism was causically titled The Tale of a Great Sham. That text runs to about 70,000 words. It was written in 1907, but was only published in 1986, which seems extraordinary. Anna, never an impartial commentator, depicted her experience in the land war as long and uncongenial bondage. She mentioned neither Charles, Fanny, nor the American Ladies' Land League, but her own organisation was not above reproach. She wrote, people with aims so radically different and incompatible that the Land League and the Ladies' Land League had no business in the same boat. In straying from the bounds of feminine passivity and in wholeheartedly committing to the No Rent Manifesto, and in showing a profound political pragmatism, the Ladies' Land League was wrongly labelled as extreme and extravagant, with Anna castigated as the architect of women's undoing. The Parnell sisters therefore need to be reassessed as integral to the land war, and as women who in life and in death exemplified 19th century gender expectations and the repercussions for those who transgressed these boundaries. Thank you very much.